uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 50. Let me say thank you to our, our boy band that led us in, uh, in singing this morning. Uh, but Genesis chapter 50, and we'll, uh, as I said, I'll bring to a close uh, this morning a series on the life of, of Joseph. Let me say a short word of prayer before the preaching of the word, though. Let us pray. Our blessed God and Lord, we thank you again for the grace that we have to have your word open to us. We thank you because of how your word cleanses, how it strengthens, it purifies us, it renews and gives hope. But all this is because by the Spirit, the word points to Jesus. And so we, we know that apart from your, your work among us, even the preaching of the Bible will have no benefit. And so we cry out to you, our hearts cry out to you, to be at work among us, showing us how the words of Scripture lead to Christ. Show us Christ, we pray, uh, that we might find rest in him. Help me then to teach the word faithfully. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we just, we just finished a, a week of uh, Holiday Bible Club, five days um, of teaching young children the Scriptures. Our, our theme was, was Noah's Ark. And uh, one of the things that teachers will, will often include in the lessons for the children is what we refer to as memory verses. Um, uh, memory verses are, you know, the particular verses from, say, uh, a story that will help bring all the themes together, you know. So teachers try and choose um, verses that will help the the substance of the story stick versus that maybe bring you to the heart of uh, whatever story children have been learning, whatever part of the Bible children have been learning. Well, if you had to choose a memory verse for the life of Joseph, as we've been considering over the past few weeks, then it would be um, my text for this morning in chapter 50 and verse 20 in particular, uh, where Joseph uh, responds to his brothers who are now afraid that their dad having passed away, their father having passed away, Jacob had passed away. That's what, we, that's what, we, that, that's what meets us in, in, in chapter 50. Uh, they're afraid that now Joseph is going to remember all that they've done to him and that the only thing that had stopped Joseph from being gracious to them was that, that their dad being alive and him not wanting to cause their father distress. Uh, but of course, Joseph says, no, it's, it's, it's God that has made me being gracious to you. And so he says in verse 20, the way I understand everything that has happened to me is that as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that might be the central verse to help us draw all the themes of the life of Joseph together. Obviously, in the past few weeks, we have explored many themes from the life of Joseph. There's Joseph's life contributes to our understanding of, of suffering and suffering in the Christian life and uh, trials and temptations as we, we saw him in Potiphar's house. And of course, the great idea of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, but 
maybe this is the thought that holds it all together. Maybe this is the, the philosophy of Joseph's life, the truth that stabilized and undergirded him throughout the changing scenes of his life. But those words that Joseph utters, uh, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I don't know at what point Joseph comes to the full realization of that. I'm not sure the extent to which he's able to grapple with the implications of that at the earlier part of his ministry, of, of his life, sorry, of his experiences. But by the time everything comes full circle, by the time Joseph has gone through what he's gone through and he's standing in front of his brothers, this is the truth that holds him up. This is his understanding of how God works and of the way God is working that makes Joseph the gracious man that he is standing in front of his brothers. His brothers cannot believe that Joseph will not retaliate against them. They can't believe that Joseph will have such serenity, such peace of mind, that the bitterness uh, that he ought to be feeling at what his brothers have done to him will not finally unleash itself in vengeance against them. They find it hard to believe that Joseph will not eventually, after pondering and thinking and having fresh, just a fresh flashes of what his brothers had done, another fresh flash of being in the pit, another fresh flat, flat, a flash of him being ignored when he cried out to them for help, that these things would not seem just suddenly catch him and take hold of him and cause him to act brutally towards them. And Joseph says, far from being the case, I see things from a totally different perspective. Well, well why, why, why does Joseph think this way? He says, because I'm, 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 I'm realizing that God was at work. Uh, he, initially in verse 19, he says, I'm not in the place of God. Um, actually, God is God, and I, and I see God's hand in all of this. It's because I've got a focus on what God is doing. It's because I understand now, at least, how God works, how God acts and interacts with his creation, that I'm able to realize that vengeance towards you is, is not simply going, not, not going to help anything. I mean, it won't help Joseph. Uh, and it's not simply, uh, but it's not simply not just the right thing to do. Um, vengeance towards you would be foolish because I realize that the principal actor in all of this is God. Right? God's, God's actions are the ones that matter the most. Uh, so, so Joseph grasps this. He grasps God's actions. And um, in so doing, of course, he provides vital counsel and comfort for Christians. I think one of the, the biggest uh, challenges for believers when we, when we go through trials and just trying to live for God in, the, in this world and living faithfully for God is our ability to reconcile with God's actions, to grasp that God is acting and to believe it, and to receive it, and to live as those who know God is at work. Our biggest problem is probably that our frail humanity does not allow us to take our eyes off the elements and the things that are happening around us, and our, our individual actions and the actions of other individuals, and fix them on the principal actor in all these things, which is God. That's, that's vital truth that Christians are going to have to pray that the Holy Spirit impresses upon their hearts 
at all points of their lives, at different varying points. But not only is, it, is that true for Christian experience, it also points us to a vital truth of the gospel, with which I'll, I'll close the sermon. All right? Those words of, of Joseph, as for you, um, you, you meant it for evil, God, but he, God meant it for good. Those words of Joseph, uh, centuries down the line, are, are, are repeated, not verbatim, but the, the sense of it is repeated by, by the apostles, actually way more frequently in the preaching of the first church than we do in the preaching of the gospel. The, the apostles are very aware of how God is the principal actor in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ um, and how God is able to work through and, and, and bring his own purposes to pass even whilst there is the competing purposes, if you want, of evil man. So, well, let's explore, explore this then. As I say, this, this, the key thought, perhaps, in the life of Joseph are these words. Um, uh, God is acting, even when uh, there is evil, even when men mean it for evil. Uh, the, the principal thing is to know that God is acting and acting for good. Well, three things I want to draw your attention to then this morning, three points to help us illuminate or illustrate that, that point. Um, three things that I think are present then in the mind of Joseph. Again, I'm not sure when he has a, a kind of all-encompassing, climactic appreciation of this, like his highest understanding of this truth. But by the time he's speaking in Genesis 50, it's clearly what he's declaring. First thing, uh, it seems quite obvious, but it's the fact that in all things, God has a plan. God has a plan. Um, when Joseph's brothers confront him, they're afraid that he's going to want to do evil to them. And almost, they're almost indicating that they, he deserves, they deserve evil. They should be punished. But could Joseph be somewhat lenient and rather than destroy them and their families or anything, at least allow them to be slaves. They certainly don't deserve goodness from him. They, they, they certainly don't deserve generosity, and they're, they're quite humble for saying that. And when Joseph responds with a heart that is free from bitterness, it's because Joseph is keenly aware, as I was just saying, that there is more involved in what happens, in what has happened, than them, than his brothers Joseph says, you had a, an evil plan as well. So it's, it's important to say that. Joseph is not denying the evil that these brothers did. He's not denying the evil that men do. And our affirming of God's plan is not meant to be an excuse for denying our own actions. But Joseph is so aware that what matters the most is that God has a plan. I've, I've said that verse 20 is the key verse, but verse 19 is also quite illuminating. Joseph says, don't be afraid. I'm not God. I'm not God. He's aware of the, the godness of God. He's so aware of the godness of God that Joseph is convinced that in a true sense, his brothers could not have done this to him if God had not allowed it. Right? Joseph knew what it was like under, to be under the control of wicked men. When those brothers who were bigger than him and stronger than him 
were making decisions about what to do with his life, there was nothing that Joseph could do about it. They grabbed him, they thrown him into a pit, probably beat him up a little, roughed him up a little, thrown him into a pit, and they were deciding whether they wanted to kill him, whether they would sell him somewhere, would they let him go. When they were doing that to him, Joseph knew what it was like to be, to feel helpless, to feel like I'm absolutely under the control of another. One of the most terrible things to experience, isn't it? To feel enslaved to someone else. But it's becoming clear to Joseph that even at that point, his brothers, even at that point, his brothers were never ultimately in control. At every single point in life, there's only one who has absolute control, and that is God, the God who is in the heavens, the God who the Bible says that nothing comes to pass without his permission. The, the God who the Bible says he's in the heavens and he does everything that he pleases. So when Joseph says you had an intention, you had a plan for evil, but God had a plan for good, Joseph is affirming what we refer to as God's sovereignty. Joseph is saying human beings can plan all they want, but when all is said and done, it is God's plan that comes to pass. Joseph is saying, I appreciate that there is a place to speak of your planning, even evil planning. There is a place to speak of how this is what I wanted to do, my intention. This is what we tried to do, and, and this is what we accomplished. But now I realize that there's no such thing. In one sense, and I, and I say this just to bring it home to you, in a sense... There's no such thing about being, uh, as being outside of God's plan. Now, 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 in a sense, there is. There is a way in which you can speak about being outside of God's plan for my life. I, I understand how people use that, but I'm not talking about this that this morning. I'm saying there's important for you to be able to be equally convicted, because I know that we run after we run after guidance as to how I can know I'm in God's plan. I hear that all, all the time. I want to know that this is God's plan for my life. How can I know that this is God's plan? We run after that all the time, and there is some, yeah, there's, there's merit to that. But we have to be able to equally say that at every point, there's a sense in which at every point in our lives, we are always following God's plan. Joseph says, this was true even when you were doing evil, even when you were doing wickedness. And of course, I have to correct this over and over again. He's not saying that it was God that did their evil. He was not saying that they could justify their evil. But in a way that Joseph doesn't attempt to um, eliminate the difficulty or tensions, he says, your evil was part of God's plan. And Joseph is so aware of the greatness of God, the Godhood of God, that makes him say, when all is said and done, I am where I am. I went through what I went through because God wanted it to be so. Because God has a plan, and his plan is the plan that comes to pass. Because God has a plan, and nothing frustrates his plan. Because God has a will, and his will is always inevitably accomplished. 
And sometimes God makes us go through what we go through because we need to become sensitive to that. That's why sometimes God hits us with the suddenly and the unexpected so that we learn that we are not in control because we are usually cruising and everything is planned and pre-planned and we think everything is going to go as expected. Things are mundane and routine, right? And it gives us a sense of control until God pulls the rug from underneath our feet. And so we realize, I'm not in control. He is in control. God has a plan. And it's a good thing for you to plan. Usually people who don't plan are either being lazy or careless or unloving. So it's a good thing to plan. But all the planning in the world does not dictate how God is planning. When God has planned, no one can do anything about it. How great is our God? I remember growing up, and for some reason, preachers always use this song in their sermon. You know, Kesarasara? Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. You know that? I mean, some of you are too, too young, maybe. But it's, uh, I can't remember who sang it. Some lady sang it. And it actually poses interesting theological questions because the song says, Kesarasara, I hear it's some kind of translation of a Spanish term for saying whatever will be, will be. And I used to always hear preachers say, that's not biblical. It's not Christian. And I totally understand them. And I agree with large parts of that. What, what they were saying is to kind of resign yourself to fatalism is not a way to, to live your life. As though, you know, just live your life as you want and whatever will unfold in the universe will unfold. And, um, and they said, no, that's not true. Like, our, our decisions have consequences. The things we do, the things we say, they matter. You know, the things you, the decisions you make change things. Prayers change things. Um, so, so this idea of fatalism, don't worry, don't think through things, don't make decisions because at the end of the day, whatever it's going to be is going to be, is not a Christian thought. And probably in the sense that uh, it was being popularized, it wasn't a, a Christian thought. You know, the, the Bible doesn't teach that our decisions don't matter. The Bible doesn't teach that good will happen to us uh, just because. The Bible doesn't, the Bible teaches that what you sow, you will reap. Um, the Bible teaches that when you pray, things happen. The, the Bible teaches, um, you know, you do good to others, you want them to do good to you, and so on and so forth. There are, there's, a, um, there's consequences for our actions, there's a give and take. And, and so I, I, I was sensitive to, I appreciate the criticism of the song. But ever since I was young and I heard preachers make reference to that song and explain it as unbiblical, I could never shake off the tension of the element of truth that I knew was present in the song. Christians have to be people who believe that very often God's plan will be accomplished regardless of what we do and still strive to do the right thing. Christians have to be people who believe that we ought to work hard if we want to prosper. But if God desires to hold back prosperity for us from, for a season, no amount of hard work will yield success. There has to be a, an element of that in our lives where we are in awe 
of the God whose plan is the one that always comes to pass. And it's a plan that God doesn't always tell us. What, what God is doing in our lives, at least in, this limit, in a limited sense, in our day-to-day, sometimes is quite shrouded in mystery. We don't know why we go through what we go through or what we're going to go through. Uh, we, we just have to trust. And God's people have always responded this way to the conviction of that, that God has a plan that cannot be overturned. They've responded not by saying it's an excuse for my sin or it's an excuse for me to complain or be bitter, but they have responded by saying a true conviction that God does what he pleases and ultimately it's his plan that comes to pass and that I might have, I might have a vision to be going this way, heading this way, but if God wants, he can turn things around without telling me that um, it must lead to fear. We fear God. That's why we speak about God like this, so that our God does not become small, idol, an idol God that we control. We control by our prayer. We control by our desires. You know what it's like to think that you can desire something till God does it, right? And you also know what it's like to realize that that's not how it works. He's God. You've cried for things through the night, and God never gave it to you in the morning. He's God. And the reason why we speak like this is because we must remind ourselves that he's a God to be feared. And we live our lives with humility. We're humbled, knowing that he's the one in control and not us. And uh, you remember in the book of James, James warns the boasters, those who say, tomorrow we will do this, go into such and such and buy this and do that. And he says... uh, you, but you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is a mist. Pairs today, gone tomorrow. Don't, don't you realize that? Aren't you conscious of the fact that you're not totally in control? That God's plan is what will come to pass. Shouldn't you be people who ought to say instead, if the Lord wills, if it pleases God, we will live and do this or that. And knowing that God is the one in control and not me and you ought to humble us. Are you humble this morning, my brother and sister? Have you been living a humble life or are you a boaster? I, I tell you what a boaster is. A boaster is someone who makes planning without praying. I, I tell you what a, a boaster is. A, a boaster is someone who never expects to grieve or to weep, who runs away from mourning because they feel like all they want is ease and joy. Are you a Are you boasting or are you humble under the God whose plan is what will come to pass? We must be humbled and we live righteously as well. Because we know God's plan comes to pass, we actually, we live to honor him. It's not an excuse for our sin. And and I genuinely believe, this is a tough thing to say, I, I believe that God's plan includes his permission of sin and evil. I believe that. We all know too well what it's like to find ourselves in a situation because of our sin, but then to see how it was still part of God's plan for it to happen that way. You don't know what I'm talking about? You're too, you're too holy to see that? But it's true, it happens. You, you never heard of someone who had a child out of wedlock, and that was a sin. The child was a blessing, and through the child, they, through all of that, and the people who, the shame, people who rejected them, They sought their help only in the God who can forgive and be gracious to them. 
And God was gracious to them. And God gave them strength. And they were able to raise their child. And now they live a life of deep thanksgiving to God for how he blessed their sin, how he used their sin, how he was merciful. You haven't seen that. It happens. God's plan supersedes even our sin. It's a weird thing to try and grapple with. But it's not an excuse for sin, is my point. I'm not saying it's an excuse for sin. Those of us who believe that God is in control and his plan will come to pass also realize that very often his plan includes blessing righteousness. And so we pursue righteousness. But anyway, Joseph was convinced of God's sovereignty and we must have a a view of how great God is. Right? And when we think about God and when we speak about God, God must be great. Now, anyone can say that. Anyone can say God is great. Anyone can sing God is great. But do you really know what it is to speak of the greatness of God? His plans will come to pass. And there's nothing you and I can do about that. Nothing. What he plans will come to pass. That's true, but it's probably not enough to provide us with the comfort that the scriptures want to provide us with. David is, sorry, Joseph is admitting that God's plan is, will always come to pass. But he's saying a bit more. He's saying a bit more than just the fact that God has a plan that will also come, always come to pass. He's also saying in that passage, in that verse, that God's plan is not frustrated by evil. God's plan, this is the second thing, is not frustrated by evil. You meant evil against me. You had a plan, but God meant it for good. And so God used your evil plan to accomplish the good that he desired to bring about. God used your evil to accomplish his own plan. It was your evil, something you did from your own hearts. God doesn't tempt any man with evil. It was you that gave in to your wicked inner desires. It was you who surrendered to the temptation of Satan. But in, in all of that, as you were doing that, God was in absolute control. And he was using it to accomplish his own will. So evil does not frustrate the plan of God. And this is, this is, evil can be used quite comprehensively. Evil includes the evil that men do, that we do as people, the, 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 the wicked thoughts, the bitterness, the wicked acts, the mal- malicious actions that we commit. That's evil. Those evils don't frustrate God's plan. It also includes calamity. I think there's a kind of, some, at some points in the scripture, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a colorful way in which the Bible uses the word evil to refer both to the evil that we do, and just the evil that befalls us in a sinful world. So the, the losing of loved ones, the losing of, um, of, of, uh, of possessions, um, sickness and uh, betrayal and so on. The, the, the evil that we experience in a fallen world as well, the calamities, the troubles, those things don't frustrate the plan of God either. This is the thing that Joseph had come to learn. And in fact, in this regard, it may be more accurate to say, not just that God's plan is not frustrated by evils, but that in many ways, it even incorporates evil. That part of the way God works in a fallen world is to use our troubles, is to use our evil. 
And Joseph was grasping the fact that God uses very often the darkness of evil to cause us to reckon with the necessity of his light. That very often the way God chooses to work out his plan in the life of his people is to use trouble, to use tragedy, to use trial, so that God does not need to prevent evil from happening to prove that he is good. God doesn't need to deliver you from your trouble for him to prove that he is good. He is good regardless. He is always good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The evil of man, the goodness of God, side by side, Of course, God could have stopped the evil of Joseph's brothers, but he chose not to because it actually formed part of his plan. God could have stopped the kidnapping and the selling into slavery of Joseph, but he chose not to because it formed part of his plan. He could have have stopped the the, the lies. Uh, He could have stopped the false accusations that stuck on Joseph from Potiphar's wife, but he chose not to because it actually formed part of the plan. This must be what released Joseph from so much bitterness is that he understood that ultimately there was a sense in which God caused him this pain. God was using the pain. No, no, Joseph saw how his brothers caused him pain. But he also saw how God was using the pain. How God caused the pain. You meant the pain for evil. God used the pain for my good. There's nothing. There's few things more difficult and yet more vital for us to grasp as pilgrims. When we want to live for God's glory in this world, then to understand that God will often use trouble to accomplish His purposes for us. He will use tragedy. He will use pain. And in darkness, we must strive to see God's light. We we must be able to sit in our darkness and still see that God is light. We must be able to sit in the evil and still see that God is good. This is what Christians always have to strive for. We, we may cry to God and ask him, as our Lord Jesus did, to take this cup away from us. We might beg him to ease the pain and to relieve us of the strain and to free us and to, to, give, us, uh, to give us more and to give us more abundantly and to open this door and to give us this desire of our heart. Uh, but very often... The, the pain we go through, the trials we go through, form part of God's plan. That's how God is going to accomplish his plans for you. That's how God is working. He, in a sense, he, he brought the evil, he brought the trial, and he needs you to sit right there under it. And, and the way you do that, the only way you, to, to do that is to be convinced of the goodness 
of God. You have to be convinced of the goodness of God at that point. Uh, not, you don't have to be convinced of the goodness of what you are experiencing in and of itself. Um, being terribly sick is not a good thing in and of itself. Right? That's a painful thing. That's a bad thing. And to be sick to the point where you are unable to um, fend for yourself, sick to the point where you're unable to accomplish many aims and ambitions that you have, sick to the point where you're physically you feel almost useless, basically. That's not a good thing, right? That's not, it's not a nice thing. If it was a good thing, God would keep it forever. One day God is going to destroy that from our lives. But we must see how a good God can use that for our good. We must trust that. And that's how you bear under the weight of trial. That's how Joseph could look his brothers in the face and, unlike they thought he should, not respond in vengeance and bitterness because Joseph was convinced about how God uses evil. He had his eyes fixed on God. I, I know what you meant, and if, I, if I'm just thinking about what you meant and, and what you did and what you caused me by your betrayal, then yes, all that, all that, all that there is to come is, is vengeance and I want to get my own back, my own pound of flesh. But when I realized that there was a greater actor here than you, there's God. And, and I realized that it's, it's, it's God who uses evil to accomplish his good. Uh, then, uh, I'm, 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 then there's no, there's, no, there's no room for Joseph to be better. Joseph, rather, is worshiping at the feet of a, of a sovereign God who uses evils to accomplish his plan. He uses troubles to accomplish his plans, and um, the, the, the troubles of a dark world do not frustrate the plan of God. This is the question of, of the problem of evil. Folks swear that a, if, if there is a, a God who is all-knowing, and he's good, and he's wise, he surely wouldn't allow a world that sees so many evils. And without being able to say that we can explain everything fully, the Bible's response is that the God uses, often uses evils to accomplish his own good plan. And it's because men and women are not reckoning with the sovereignty of God, with the power of God, that they don't see that evil in the world does not mean that God is not in control. In fact, very often it's the very evidence that he is. And so he learned that second thing, that God's plan is not frustrated by evil. And thirdly, Joseph learned that God's plan works for our good. Again, it would be, it'd be some comfort to know that when evil things happen to us, God is still in control, and that actually God uses evil to accomplish his plan and so on and so forth. That could be comforting. But I don't know if that would be comforting enough. I think this last point is vital Right? To say that not only does God have a plan, and not only does God have a plan that incorporates evil, but actually his plan is for the good of those who love, trust him, who are called according to his purpose. Not only can I accept this providence, this difficult providence, not only can I accept this pain because I know God is in control, and who am I to argue with him? Not only can I accept this because I know that God can use evil to accomplish his own plans and he has a desire to glorify himself, I can also accept it because in the end, I know that God is working and all things are working then for my good. 
So Joseph says, I now see that not only was God in control of your evil, but he, the, the, the wicked intentions you had for your evil actions, he actually used for my good. He used your evil, and your intention was always to do evil to me. But God always intended to use this for my good. Of course, as a 17-year-old, maybe Joseph couldn't see this as well. But in looking back, he sees now all those things happened for good. It happens for good. And it's hard to see that, of course, when we are in the thick of the things, when we are when the, the, when the trauma of the evil is fresh in our minds, it's hard to see how will this be for my good. But you're believing in the promise and the faithfulness of God. God says, this is going to be for your good. I mean, first of all, it flows from our conviction of that, that this is true, flows from the fact that we believe that God is always good. He's a good God. And so we must... We must believe the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of God. How good is the God we adore? And it's so important, right, for Christians to be able to see this. And actually, we, must, we should fight for this, especially when evil is prevailing, especially when there's trouble all around us, especially when we cannot make sense of the things that are happening to us. When there's great pain and great fear and great sorrow and great failure, we have to fight to see, fight the fight of faith to see that God is good. Everything around me might not be, and I might not feel so great at the moment, but this God is good. And because he's good, he does good. He will, he will do good for me. Because he's good, he can be trusted. Because he's good, I can trust that he never allows me to go through things with even one iota, one drop of malice or bitterness or, or as though he just rejoices in seeing me go through pain, right? We, we need to know that. When we preach about how God allows his people to suffer, we have to say that God doesn't rejoice in us just suffering. God rejoices in what he's doing to us, for us, through suffering. He, he, he rejoices in what he's making us through our suffering. Right? We, we, we trust the character of God. It's only by trusting the character of God that you can trust that the pain you are going through is good for you. That the trial that God allows me to go through is good for me, is going to work good for me. It's only because I trust the character of God. He will never fail. Now, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and remember all his benefits. Do not forget his benefits. The psalmist says that there is good grounds for the Christian to see that God is good. Now, maybe not in the moment. Maybe when we can't make, we can't make sense of what we're going through, but if we look back on his pattern of acting, if we look back on how he has dealt with us, and we realize he never changes, he's always been faithful, his word has been true, then we, we start to say, okay, I, I, this is not, it doesn't feel nice. This is, this is not a nice experience. 
but I'm dealing with a God who is good. And I can trust him. In fact, you see something similar with parents. If you saw a parent chastening their child, I don't know how they might do it. Some might use really old school ways of chastening. Some might be more modern. But either way, if you see them disciplining their child, very often it doesn't feel nice. You know, you always get those annoying uncles who wanna, or, or aunties who want to help the child who's being punished. Like, you know, the parent says, oh, you can't watch TV anymore. And the uncles, they say, no, 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 come and watch it. My family, it's a nice uncle kind of thing, right? Get out of my house. But anyway, um, because usually, standing from the outside, seeing a child being chastened doesn't feel nice. It doesn't look nice. But also, usually, we trust. If we trust the character of parents, we trust that what they're doing to their children, they're not doing out of hatred. They're actually doing out of love. You, you trust that actually they're doing this to build this child's character and they're doing this to teach these children necessary things about how to live and so on and so forth. Now, very often, we also come across parents who um, have no business chastening kids and very often even the best parents discipline kids from the wrong place and wrong motivation, from being stressed, and being fed up and so on. But if we can trust earthly parents to discipline children, if we can trust the discipline of soft little children with earthly parents, how much more ought we with the heavenly father? There's no such thing as selfish motivation with God when it comes to how it chastens us. There's no such thing as God is too stressed, and that's why he's, no, there's no such thing. Everything he does to us flows from goodness. And there's nothing like being able to look up to God in the time of your distress and you know that God is good. You see what I'm saying? That God is good, not just good, he's good to you. He's good to you. That means when I look up to him, he doesn't look back at me with disgust. When I look up to him, he doesn't look back at me with resentment. When I look up to him, he doesn't look back to me saying, you brought this on yourself, so no, no, no. When, when you look up to him, you look up to a good God. And that's a God who sustains and he supports. And God speaks to us words of love. And he tells us to keep going on. And he tells you, I'll bring you through this. And he tells you, you don't, don't give up. This, this evil is not going to overwhelm you. you. You learn. You'll be strengthened. And he tells you almost that I know you have to, I know you have to cry at them. I know it's painful. I know it's hard, but I'm, I'm with you. Keep pressing on. Our God is good, and He works all things for your good. And you, you learn this, right? You, you, you learn that Joseph learned that the reason why he had to go to Egypt was because he was going to save his brothers. He was going to save his family. Eventually, after God has brought us through, we, we see what God was doing. He was doing this for our good. Uh, sometimes we just learn that God is doing this to make us, to strengthen our character. Um, he's doing this to wean us away from maybe um, sinful desires that we had. Very often we go through things because God is purifying us. Uh, very often we go through things so we can be helped, uh, help to other people. You know, I, I, we went, I went through this and now I'm equipped to help others go through it. Either way, we look back and we see that God was working all things together for our good. Those things that we couldn't make meaning of at the time, we come to see how God is using it. So God's plan works for our good. But let me say that the, 
the good that God is ultimately working things together for is, and, and I'm using now, you can tell, uh, the language of Romans to speak about, but it's very similar to theology here, but to speak about the thoughts of Joseph. Because it is in Romans 8 that Paul tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And I say to you, and the most comforting, maybe some of the most comforting words that Christians hear from the scriptures ever, is that God is working all things together for their good. God is working all things together for your good. But we must remember what good the book of Romans is speaking about. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I believe God gives his people so many good gifts in this world. I believe that this pattern, and I'm going to speak about a bigger ultimate pattern, takes place on a smaller scale over and over again in the life of God's people. That is the pattern of God allowing them to go through phases of trial and suffering and then using it to bring them good, even temporal good. I believe it happens over and over and over again. So God's people go through sickness, a sickness that, um, a terrible sickness for a season. And then he brings them out of it so that they can learn many things about his character and many things about what it's like to follow him. But you realize that there's sometimes God doesn't bring his people out of sickness. You realize that sometimes God doesn't give his people the provision they wanted. There are times when God doesn't give his people the desires of the hearts that they look for. There's times when God doesn't solve the problems that his people bring to him. And that's because the ultimate good that God is working, and according to the book of Romans 8, is for us to be like his son, Jesus Christ. When the Bible says God is working all things together for your good, what it's saying is all things work together for God's children to be with him in glory. God is working all things together to bring many sons to glory. This is the good that God is working in your life and in my life at this very point. It's vital to say that, right? Lest we think that the only way God can dis display his goodness to us is if he gives us eventually what we want. Lest we think that the only way God can show his goodness to us is if he satisfies that earthly or temporal desire that we have. You know, one day we're all going to see, at, the, at least at the point of death, we're all going to see a temporal desire that we have not granted to us. No one really wants to die. We want to live forever, but we all have to go through death because not even death stops God from being able to accomplish his ultimate will to do good for his children. You know what that good is? It's to make you like Jesus. All things are working together. God is working all things so that you and I become like Jesus Christ, so that you and I don't turn our back on Christ, so that you and I don't give up on the fight of faith. He's working all things together so that one day you and I can stand before him holy and blameless. And that's the good that God wants for you in your life right now. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to arrive holy and blameless in his eternal presence in glory. And if you don't have your mind fixed on that, you're going to misunderstand how God is working in your life. You're going to misunderstand how God can allow certain things to happen and still be saying that he's good 
and he's working in your life because you're not seeing what God is doing for you. What he's doing is he's making you more like Jesus and he's always accomplishing that. And that's the ultimate good. And our hearts must be drawn to that. You and I must ask for God to open our eyes so that we can see that the good that we need is to be like Jesus Christ. The good that we need is to one day trade this earthly life for eternal glory. Our hearts must long for it. Now that good, God promises to accomplish. But just like with Joseph, God saved Joseph and his brothers through the evil that happened to Joseph. Joseph says, this evil that happened to me, that you did to me, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How do we arrive at good? How do we arrive at glory? Because the evil that men intended when they crucified the Lord of glory, God meant for good. And in the early church, this was what they always preached, right? In the, in, in the, in the earliest, uh, earliest evangelistic message, of the first church, the apostle Peter says in Acts 2 verse 23, that this Jesus uh, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. What was meant for evil, to crucify the innocent son of God, God intended for good. And because God's plans cannot be stopped, he delivered up his son to die. He rose again. He is king of kings forever. And in Jesus Christ, we can be sure, in Christ we can be certain that the sovereign God who has a plan and the plan of the gospel is from eternity past. That the sovereign God who can use evil, and if there's any evidence that you have that God can use evil, it's in the crucifixion of the innocent son of God. That that God can work all things together for our good. Because through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have received the goodness of God's grace, the goodness of eternal life. Amen.